to the Insight Studios podcast. Today's subject is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This is lesson 2 in the ongoing series, A Study in Matthew. Today's presenter is Pastor Kimberly Orr. Okay. Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. This is a wonderful study. This is a wonderful book to get started with. Uh, Miss Leona Ellis actually let me know when she first came here to Windsor. She was one of the original ones, right? This is the book that they studied first. It was the first Sunday school class here at Windsor. So I think it is appropriate that um, we continue that tradition, come back 32 years later and say, let's do it again. Maybe we'll do it more than that, right? Um, So let's open with a word of prayer. Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being the living word. We just decree and declare that through your spirit, you will be our teacher, our guide, that you will bring us knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and appropriation to be able to take it into our lives, Lord, and for it to affect your word, to affect how we make decisions, how we talk, how we act, and Lord, just um, encourage us today. Lord, forgive us for any sins that we may have committed by thought, word, or deed. Give us the grace to forgive those who may have hurt or offended us in some way, and help us not to yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For you are indeed king, living word, great I am, prince of peace, the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So how many of you were able to listen to some of the Gospel of Matthew this week? Did that help you to listen to it on, on, on your phone? Like when you were walking or, or whatever? And what was your experience with that? Was that, how did that, did that help get the word in you a little, a little differently? So what was your experience with that? I just found that um, it, it was, it seemed to, it's easier to, to kind of comprehend when someone else, someone's reading it to you and you're going, kind of going along with it. Mm-hmm. It, um, especially sometimes the pronunciations, you get hook, hung up on the pronunciations and sure. when you're trying to read it. But having someone else read it to you just kind of, it just allows you to just kind of get more immersed in it versus when I read it myself. Good. That's an excellent point. Did anyone else have have a positive experience, a new aha with listening to the word this week? Brother Lance? I'm sorry. Interpreted your question as to either read or listen. Okay, you read. Excellent. Okay, excellent, excellent. And did you have any aha moments this week with what you read in particular? You don't have to have, but did you have anything? Not yet. Okay, excellent. Well, the Holy Spirit is working. So um, today we're going to get into the genealogy. We're only doing the first 17 verses of Matthew. This is the slow boat through Matthew. So if you come for the next year, we'll still be in Matthew. All right? Um, So uh, just the first 17 verses. How many of you have a family tradition of keeping up with your genealogy of your ancestors? Does anybody have that tradition? Last night we had several people who had researched. Anybody researched their family? Okay. Excellent. So... Why did you decide to do that? Those of you who do that, why did you make a decision to do that? I was inquiring on my uh, my family of course back, you know, doing slavery, how they sure. came into America. 
We got the text and still. Okay, trying to figure out how they got here. Yeah. Okay, right. excellent. Somebody else? Is that pretty much why you? Family tree. Family tree, okay. Um, yes? I did what my sister did, and uh -huh. that's to pass it on to the next generation. Right. So generations can know about your history. Absolutely. Um, yes, sir. Family reunions up. We have the 74th family reunion. Oh wow, 74th family reunion. So each year. So knowing knowing who your people are is very important to your family. Amen. Good. Know who your cousins are. Know who, know who you can marry and who you can't, right? <laughs> well, in the ancient world, genealogies functioned much the same way, but also had several layers um, on top of that. So if you have your long sheet, um, the first question there is, why were genealogies important? So why were genealogies important in the ancient world? They were important for uh, basically a couple of reasons. One, um, they, like you just talked about, they told you who this person is. Who's their family? Who's their people? And in the case of Jesus, it was very important to establish that he was the real Messiah, not a pretender. And he was truly from the line and lineage, in this case for Matthew, of David. That he comes from the royal line. That's extremely important to Matthew. Because there were other people running around during this period of time saying they were the Messiah. Jesus was not the only one claiming this title. Matthew was making sure that the church knew, the first church knew, that Jesus was the real deal. And this is why. Because he can trace his lineage all the way back to David most especially, and all the way back to Abraham. Now, those two people are very important. Notice, what does verse 1 say? Somebody read verse 1 for me. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ is son of David, the son of Abraham. Right. So the very first verse sets out who the two most, three most important people in this setting, right? Jesus, number 1. Two, David, three, Abraham. David, because he was viewed as the prototype king, the king that united both the northern and southern tribes of Israel, right? Um, the northern ten tribes and the southern two. Um, and then Abraham, because he was the father of all nations. Remember the promise that Abraham would have a seed, would have a descendant that would bless all nations, right? So Jesus, Matthew is pointing out that Jesus fulfills this promise to Abraham that Jesus is the descendant that blesses all nations. So he's saying both that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and he is the Messiah for everybody by naming those two people. That's very important. So that's the header for the entire section Okay, that we're about to look at. So the header is verse 1. It's like if you were, uh, you know, writing any document and you put the heading at the top, that's the header. Right? Shows what, what's the important point. Then we go through a set of generations 
Not beginning with Adam, but with whom? Verse 2, Abraham. Abraham predates the Exodus and predates Mount Sinai when the law is given, right? So Abraham is from southern Iraq. There are no Hebrews at this point. Hebrews come out of, and the nation of Israel comes out of, the Exodus. And then prior to that, remember the sons, the 12 tribes that are established through Jacob prior to the enslavement. Remember that? You have the 12 sons. Remember the story of Joseph? Okay. So... Um, the tribes that are established through Jacob, who is known as Israel, the stiff-necked one, comes after Abraham. Again, Abraham emphasizes the point that Jesus is the Messiah for all nations. So we go through these, and I'll talk about these a little more. But um, So let's go back to your question. Why are genealogies important? It gives authority that this person's the real deal, right? Um, and then, what are the purposes of Matthew's genealogy? Okay, here's some specific things. One is to, again, establish the royal lineage. The royal lineage in Matthew is what is important. You may have heard it said that Matthew's genealogy is Joseph's genealogy, and Luke's genealogy is Mary's genealogy. Eh. They're both Jesus' genealogies. Um, it's not about establishing Joseph or Mary. It's about establishing Jesus as who he says he is. Okay. We'll talk about the differences here in a minute. But Matthew's, again, is to establish the official royal line. Even today, in Jewish circles, especially amongst Orthodox Jews or Hasidic Jews, um, there are people who have kept the line of what are called the Kohen, the priests. If your last name is Cohen in Judaism, um, that means that you are likely related to the priesthood coming out of Jerusalem. Right? That group of people, those families, only marry each other. There's several kind of sublines, but they only marry each other, trying to keep the Kohen, the priests, in together, in the bloodline, if you will. In Judaism, and this is where Mary comes in and is important. In Judaism, your Jewishness, whether you're a Jew or not, is passed through your mother, not your father. Your father ain't got nothing to do with it. Only your mother. Which is why Mary has to be the biological mother of Jesus. Think about why um, it would be important to pass uh, Jewishness through the mother. So let's just say, wait, the mother knows that she's the mother. That's right. Yes. All right. She knows she gave birth. The father. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yes, and then sometimes you would have more than one wife, which would also complicate things. 
One of the things that happened in the ancient world, the ancient Israelite world, especially the ancient Near Eastern world, which is that area in the Middle East there, is that it is traditional for when a child was born in a family, and let's say a man had three or four wives, all right? And if that child did not look like him, he would not adopt it. Just because the child is born does not mean that the father would receive it. It was not automatic. There had to be an inspection of the child by the father, and then they were adopted, even if they were blood. Even if they were blood, you had to have a formal acceptance of that child. Okay, but that's the key. You know, yeah. now when a baby's born, they don't kind of look like nobody. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. They had, 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 <laughs> they do. They do. Scientifically, wow. women, your children share more of their father's DNA than they do yours. Yeah. That's right. just, the, that may explain a whole lot of things. I don't know. In your family. <laughs> okay? Right, but no, but listen. So, in the ancient world, that was what was very important, was that you were adopted into the family, all right? That was the father's house. So while the mother had the responsibility of passing on Jewishness by the, just the mere fact of her biology, the father is the one who got to say, this is my son, or this is my daughter. So you can see, now think about that, how that reverberates through scripture. This is my daughter. This is my son. Uh, right? I guess the ones that didn't own they just got kicked to the curb or something. In the ancient world, yeah, it depended on the character of the man. Uh, Sometimes they were just viewed as hirelings. They were moved over to a slave position. Uh, or um, they were uh, allowed to be adopted by other family members, that kind of thing. Yeah. But... Usually, it was a one-for-one. One. Usually, that was very rare to happen. Okay, so that was very rare to happen. But, but that was, again, that's neither here nor there. The point I'm trying to make is the father is the one who adopts, that these children are his. The mother is the one who passes on the biology. Okay. So now think about that spiritually. Think about that in the Bible. In Romans chapter 8... It says that we, our spirit bears witness with the Holy Spirit that we are the children of God in which we can cry, Abba, Father. And God has adopted us through whom? Jesus. Through Jesus. He's the one that sets the mold. He's the one that's the big brother, the elder brother, who says, no, I know that's yours. I know she's yours. I know he's yours. Okay? And as a matter of fact, I have named them and marked them myself, okay? I know which ones are the right ones. So um, <laughs> that way the, the father, this is a, just imagery that's used in the ancient world to help people understand that God the Father loves you. Yeah. Okay?
Okay, he's not in the business of kicking you out. He's in the business of bringing you home. Allah, the prodigal son. Right? He's a loving father. He's not like earthly fathers. <laughs> so that's that's the big that's the big point. So when it comes to these genealogies, sometimes you'll see different names compared to the Old Testament genealogy. Sometimes you'll see people skipped. Sometimes you'll see all kinds of stuff. That does not make them wrong. It just means that they have a different purpose. So here we go. Here's another purpose for Matthew. One of the things that, uh, beyond the priestly thing, I mean, the sorry, the royal line, the establishment of the royal line, is to also give you a spiritual understanding of Jesus' significance, his spiritual significance. It says at, in verse 17 that there are generations of what? They're divided up into groupings of how, what number? 14. Okay, 14, 14, 14, right? Mm -hmm. That is purposeful because of the number 7. 7 plus 7 is 14. 14. Matthew's trying to say Jesus is doubly perfect, basically. Because throughout Matthew, Matthew uses the number seven to show perfection or completion in some way. So at another level, not only is Jesus perfect, he is the completor, the finisher of all of these generations. All of these people in these generations ultimately derive their significance from Jesus. That's basically what Matthew is saying. Their perfection is reached in Jesus. All of their generational potential is now reached and culminates in Jesus. So the double 14s, the 14s, the double 7s, really points to the spiritual relevance of Jesus as being the most important in all these generations. He's what they've been looking for, hoping for, and it's time that the Messiah show up. Okay? Another thing, the reason I gave you this Greek sheet here is, is three reasons. I want you to look at this sheet. <laughs> the very first verse in the transliterated, the anglicized Greek, it says, Biblos Genesis, not book of, which your, probably your Bible says. But better translation is the, or the book of the Genesis of Jesus. Okay? The record of the Genesis. That pulls on, yes, Genesis. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of all things right here. This is it. This is the beginning of where Jesus comes onto the scene and Every hope that has been hoped for since the beginning of time has now come to bear and come in the life and light of Jesus Christ. This is the genesis of the church. This is the genesis of the people. This is the genesis of hope and life. Okay? So that's huge. So it's not just some little book. This is the genesis, the beginning. And then if you'll go down to verse 7... There's a couple of choices that most translators make that I'm unhappy with and most scholars are unhappy with. You go to verse 7. At the end of verse 7, I'll just read 3 verse 7. So you have Solomon, 
the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abiyah, and Abiyah was the father. And it probably says Asa, right? Okay. That's not what it says in Greek. It says Asaph. Asaph. Have you heard of an Asaph in the Bible? Where have you heard of an Asaph? In the Psalms. He's a writer, right? He's one of the composers in the Psalms. This is hooking Jesus back to the theology and spirituality of the Psalms. This is intentional. Most translators will try to fix it and make it Asa. But genealogies of this type are not about purely saying this is the Father and this is who it was and this is who it was and this is who it was. But it's also teaching spiritual truths. Rabbis did this a lot. They would take genealogies and teach spiritual truths about the person, how God had used them or blessed them or whatever. So Asaph is correct. Matthew didn't make a mistake. And it hooks Jesus back to the Psalms. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the living Torah. Jesus is all of those things that are associated with the Lord of the Psalms. And then, if you will look at the middle of verse 10, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of, and yours probably says, Amon. A-M-O-N. Also, don't correct what Matthew put down. Amos, A-M-O-S. Amos is the correct word. Amos. Why Amos? Who's Amos in the First Testament? He's a prophet. Very good. This hooks Jesus up to the prophets. Okay. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes of these prophets. So you've got the royal line. You've got Jesus being the Messiah of all nations. You've got him hooked up to the theology and Lord of the Psalms. And you've got him hooked up to the theology of the prophets. Yes, sir. Uh, Pastor Kim, are you saying like uh, Asa and Asa, they're two different people? Or yes, okay. I, the I get like only on the ESV am I seeing Amos and Asa. All the rest of them are just Asa and Amos. That's correct. And so what I'm saying is that the translators made choices to fix, quote unquote, what was actually in the Greek because it fit the genealogy that is in First um, Chronicles. But my point is, is that I know from reading history of the first century that rabbis commonly use genealogies of important people to speak about their spiritual significance. So if Amos is in there and Asaph is in there, that's not an accident. Right. That's intentional to use midrash, which are extra biblical stories to teach biblical truths. This was common way of teaching. Remember, most people couldn't read. Right, right, right. Everything, we talked about this last week, so everything had to be taught orally. 
And so if they were reading this and they came across the rabbi was reading, let's say, a, 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 or a church leader in this case, Matthew or whomever is leading the church of that day, and they're reading through this genealogy, they would stop at Amos and go, okay, <laughs> Jesus fulfills all that Amos hoped for. And they would teach on that. Okay? We go back and look at Amos. All right? Um, Asaph, they would stop and say, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Psalms, of the Lord of the Psalms. He's the good shepherd. He's this, he's this. And they would go through that. They would take off and sort of riff, if you will, on these names. And they might stop. For instance, there are four women. Who? It's common to have women, but they're usually the good ones. Think about like Leah and Rachel. Okay, they're in the genealogies, the old ones in the Old Testament. But Matthew puts in four women who are Gentiles. They ain't Jews. And holds them up as persons of righteousness, but also holds them up as persons that came from some place that you shouldn't have paid any attention to them, yet they became extremely important because they gave their life to the will and purposes of God Almighty. For instance, Rahab was a what? Was a prostitute and a Gentile and a woman. Triple whammy, three strikes. <laughs> In the ancient world, those three things made you basically not alive. <laughs> okay? But she helped out the who? The, the, the spies that came in to look out Jericho, right? Scope out Jericho. And because she helped them and she saw the mighty act of God. Well, that, yeah, she was smart. She's smart. She hit them, you know, all that. Because she helped them out and because she saw the mighty act of God, she gave herself to the people called Israel and to their God. And she is counted among the righteous. But she didn't start out that way. This prefigures people like Mary Magdalene. Okay? This sets up themes in the gospel, right? It also says, well, who is Jesus? Jesus comes from a complicated background. So at one level, it's also saying, if you come from a complicated background, you can be somebody. You can be somebody. Exactly. Your parentage at one level does not make you. And that's so funny. You know, this, this is a very efficient, for that reason, this is a very efficient genealogy. It teaches us so many things at so many levels. You have Bathsheba, who David effectively raped. Right? <laughs> You've got Tamar, who was also a victim of rape. All right? Um, and who's the, who's the, who's the? Ruth. Ruth, thank you. Most really important. Great-grandmother of David, right? Yes. So um, you've got all of these women in here who would not be mentioned normally. But Matthew highlights them because of, of Jesus and the importance of showing, again, you can come from a complicated background and still be good with God. <laughs> um, that... The shame that may have come upon a family is not permanent. And that's somebody else's business. That's not God. God doesn't shame you. No, he does. Okay? Uh, and then also to say anybody can join the family of God. Yeah. People outside 
of the fold that are not Jewish by birth can still become a part of the family. So really, that's one of the things that I hope you take home today is that two things. No matter what your family tree is, God still loves you. Yeah. And you are somebody. And then two, through Jesus, you are grafted in to this family right here, to this royal line. You are part of a royal line through Jesus. And that should help your self-esteem this week. So when anybody tells you that you're not worth or less than, or you tell yourself that, <laughs> then you will stop and go, wait. I am of the royal line. <laughs> no matter what my background is, the Lord loves me and Jesus is my Messiah too. All right? So that's, 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 the, that's part of that. Okay, so questions about this. Questions about so far what we've talked about in the genealogy so far. Okay, you... I know this sounds redundant. No, that's okay. But Asia and Asa are two different people. They are two different people. Okay. And uh, Amos and Amon are two different people. Two different people. Amon was legitimately a king of Israel. Okay. Who wasn't a very good king. He reigned about two years. Okay, but they're two different people. Right. Asa was a good king, right? But um, Asaph is the psalm writer, and Amos is the prophet. So you have two different people, two different people all together. But again, they were, Matthew changed those names not to be wrong, but for theological reasons. Let me just say this again about when you're reading ancient documents, especially the Bible, we live in the 21st century. We are influenced by 19th and 20th century understandings of quote-unquote truth. For us, truth must be fact-based. In the ancient world, not so. You can have all the facts in the world and be completely wrong. That's still true today. For instance, Jesus, people, as they looked at him, they thought they had all the facts. Let's see, he's a short, curly-haired guy walking around with 12 fishermen and an IRS agent. And no carpet. He wasn't a carpet. He was not. He was a tecton, right? We know he can build stuff, and we know that he can manage. He can manage building some stuff, right? He was a good car. He was a good uh, tecton, all right. But outside of that, we knew where he came from. This little do-nothing little village of about 110 people, which was all his family. <laughs> people felt they had all the facts about who is Jesus, but they were dead wrong about the truth. The truth is not necessarily in the ancient world dependent on the observable facts. You cannot interpret the Bible through a scientific fact-based lens. Because that's not the milieu, that's not the situation it was written in. It was written in a time where theological truth, philosophical truth, truth about you as a person, was more important than the facts. All right? Sorry, go ahead. Everybody knows if you're a lawyer, right, that an eyewitness can be a problem. That's right. <laughs> All right? Yes? 
She is in there. It's listed as the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah, who we know to be Bathsheba. Okay? The woman caught on the roof. David should have been out to war. Look, she was only doing mikvah. She was doing what she was supposed to do. She wasn't doing anything wrong. So that's a whole no, that's a whole other sermon. So, 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 so when 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 did you change? When, so back in a it wasn't based on facts you said. So when did we come to this fact facts based? In the nineteenth century. Nineteenth century. Yeah. Um, when, when things like scientific investigation really came to the fore, it's not wrong. It's just a different way of assessing truth. Okay? It's not that facts were completely irrelevant in the ancient world. It's just that they were viewed in a light, in the light of, facts were the servant of truth, not the other way around. Right. Today, truth is the servant of the facts. Then, facts were simply the servant of the truth, the greater truth. Okay, so it was a philosophical difference. So that, that flipped in sort of in the early 18th, uh, sorry, 19th century. With the advent of, of, of what's called modern thought and scientific investigation. Were things repeatable, scientific, that kind of thing. Nothing wrong with it. Absolutely not. It helps us tremendously. <laughs> but I'm just saying, when you start reading the Bible, you can't apply that way of thinking to this. Literality is not a part of the Bible. So, I read the Bible literally. Can you please define literal? Can you please define that? Because what do you mean by that word, literal? If you're reading these words and defining them through your 21st century lens or your 20th century lens, that's doing the Bible a disservice. You have to read it in the time that it was written first before you yank it out of its historical context and apply it over here. Okay. When we're talking about Bible study now, not talking about getting up in the morning and allowing the Lord to just bless you, that's different. Okay, that's devotional reading, that's cool. I have no, absolutely, whatever. <laughs> but when it comes to serious Bible study or making doctrinal statements, well, this is what the Word says. If you haven't really studied it from its historical context, from its historic context within the Scripture itself, please don't make some dogmatic statement. Yes? But that's not a normal process for the average person. Explain that. Like literal? <laughs> <laughs> right. Open that up for me. What, what do you mean by that? Right. Unpacking. Okay. okay. I, I'm thinking if someone is studying the Bible and I read the Bible, I'm reading it in, in, as you said, 21st century lens. So it's hard for me to understand what it was historically because that means I have to do a little extra study, get some expertise on how to find that historical information to apply it to my normal reading today. Yes, exactly. And that's that's the hard part for the average person that's just reading the Bible for what it says, unless I have several reference books around mm -hmm. as I read Matthew 1, and then I have to find other books that clarify, define, and break down, unpackage, however, of Matthew 1. Right. The average person doesn't do that. Right, and what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help us understand, not just us at Windsor, but 
the church in general of Jesus Christ, um, we've done, pastors have done, and pastor recognizes this, we've had this conversation, we've done the church of Jesus Christ, most pastors a disservice by spoon feeding you. Um, and by chopping it up so much that you can't connect the dots. With the advent of the internet, all that information is extremely accessible to the average person. As a matter of fact, part of this class is to show you those, those resources. Okay? The reliable ones. Not the weird ones. There are more out there than the good ones. Um, not everything. God is not mad at you all the time. I had a conversation with someone this morning. I said, thank you so much for teaching the minor prophets a couple of years ago in a way where I stopped being afraid of God and the prophets because of the historical context, right? So, for instance, places like um, Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, BibleStudyTools.com, and the, and the um, online application Logos, L-O-G-O-S, and also the phone app Logos, L-O-G-O-S. We talked about this a little bit last week. Those two things, Logos um, does cost a little money, um, but it is excellent. But freebie-wise, Bible Study Tools, Bible Hub, and Bible Gateway are excellent, okay, for the average person. You can get good historical background and facts, and language helps on those three sources, and they're good. They're good, all right? So, again, if I'm just reading for encouragement, I'm not going to look up all this stuff. In the morning, when I get up to meditate uh, on the Word, I I'm, not, I'm not studying nothing, all right? <laughs> but if I sit down to study the genealogy of Matthew, yeah. Don't you want to go, you know, like, something I want to go deeper. So you, you want to know that you know what you know. Right, right. I mean, you want you want it to be that in tune in your spirit. So, right. you know, like, I'm an analytical thing. So when I read the Bible, you know, facts, you know, so I, you know, when I listen to the pastor talk, I'm like, man, I need to get my mind thinking that way, you know, because I'm an engineer and I'm used to, you know, I'm You're used to that. Yeah, I'm right. used to the analysis, right. Yeah, analysis and everything, you know, and facts. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the Bible, I mean, it just, you can't put that in the context. Yes, you can. Absolutely. Okay, okay, well, you can, but not, you know, it's supernatural. It's something. It is both. The, the content, the Bible is not a disembodied book that just floats in the supernatural. Okay? It's not this disembodied text that just floats in the supernatural. The supernaturality of it is because of who inspired it. The Bible, as we said last week, is 100% God's book. And it's 100% humanity in the same way that Jesus is 100% human and 100% God all at the same time. So in order for me to parse or to understand the humanness of Jesus, I have to see him in that context. I have to see him sweating. I have to see him eating. I have to see him um, having to walk for miles and miles and miles. Um, not having a lot of clothes. I have to see him having to depend on other people for a good night's sleep. So the human side does not detract from the God side. It helps me get a fuller picture. All right? God's word is the word of God. And we are too, as Pastor talked about this morning, speak it over and to use it. But it's only that because of God. Right. Yes, ma'am. And that's, that's God's way also of 
Holy Spirit and understanding that we can't just rely upon the natural. We do have to have the Spirit. So as we're even studying, as the Bible says, to do is we don't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. So sometimes we're led uh, to start the track, but then to go deeper in our study to understand how it will apply to us and to our situations. You know, uh, a lot of times we do want to be encouraged on the surface, but in order for our life to be changed, and do it God's way, then it requires something. That's right. It requires the Holy Spirit to take everything you're learning. You see, there's no, what we're doing right now is not unspiritual. Right. Okay? So taking the word apart and really getting down to the nitty gritty is not a natural function. It takes the Holy Spirit for us to really dig deeply. The Holy Spirit is sort of like there's two shovels. I ask the Holy Spirit, I ask the Lord Himself to help me dig. So I'm digging, I'm doing the work. And then the Holy Spirit comes up underneath that and gives it power and strength. And I keep doing this, and the deeper I go, the deeper He goes. The deeper I go, the deeper He goes. So it's always this, the whole point of doing Bible study is so that the Word of God gets in us so that the Holy Spirit has something to work with. To change us from the inside out. So many of us walk around going, Holy Spirit or Lord, just fix it. <laughs> and there ain't nothing in here to help. Right. But think that. Right. There's nothing in there to bolster. Now, a lot of times in His mercy, He'll fix it. Right. Because He's mercy on us. He loves us. But what more could there be in your life if there was so much more inside for the Holy Spirit to work with? Right. Then the Holy Spirit could, he's got a lot of handles to work, to hold on to and to work with. He's got a lot more stuff in the box. It's sort of like quilting. My grandmother was a quilter. She kept a big box of quilt pieces. If you got more quilt pieces, then you can make a bigger quilt. So if the Holy Spirit has more pieces to work with, he's got a whole lot more to cover you with. Yes? This is typically, the genealogy uh, is typically for, for most of the different chapters of books of the Bible is where I've gotten stuck. Okay. I've stuck right in the genealogy because I think I've been taking, I'm accustomed to the small doses for inspiration and to continue moving forward mm -hmm. and being encouraged, so to speak. But um, as you're talking, I, it's blowing my mind. I, I need the whole thing right now because it's true um, connecting the dots is very important and I don't think to this point I have fully done that and so I was listening to a, a, a Christian podcast this week mm -hmm. that was connecting dots as it pertains to generational curses and things mm -hmm. and so I was like wow you know what this is uh, something that I need to delve into deeper so as we continue I may ask some questions sure. this is very like I'm, I'm blown away by how much everyone here understands like this because I've never really studied. You're good. Yeah, You're in a good place. <laughs> Most people haven't. Most people have not. For real. Yes, for real. Most people have not. So you're good. You're fine. And, and what we need to understand, too, is the Bible's not written to me. It's not just there to make my life better. 
It's not my self-help book. The book primarily is written to tell us who God is. Primarily, the Bible is there to reveal to us who is God. That's what this genealogy is about. Who is Jesus, right? Then, after we've gone through all of the stuff, then we appropriate it. And I use the word appropriate because the word appropriate means I take it into my life. Not just apply it. Apply means I take some paint and I go whoosh, 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 make it better. Isn't that pretty? As opposed to appropriation, take it in so that the Holy Spirit can then change us from the inside out. Change our want to. Have you lived all your Christian life? Think about this. Have you lived all your Christian life and you're still doing the same stuff? Some version of the same stuff? That's because the Word of God has not been appropriated into your life. It's just been simply applied, like paint. Right? Chew that food. And the more time, what, what does science tell us about people who eat slower? You get fuller faster and you can control your weight better. So, if I want to have the most productive spiritual life, I need to slow way down when it comes to studying the Word of God. That's why we are slowing this baby way down. <laughs> this is like slow-mo, slow-mo. <laughs> so let's talk just briefly, because I'm not going to hold you long. Let me talk just briefly about the other genealogies in the Bible. On the back of your sheet here, you've got... We need a magnifying glass. So. Magnifying glass. Um, Matthew is using at least three sources that we know of out of Genesis, right? We've got the genealogies in Genesis. We've got the genealogies in 1 Chronicles, and that's the one listed there, 1 Chronicles. The first column there to the left is the 1 Chronicles genealogy. The second column is Matthew's genealogy. And the third one is Luke. Okay, we also know that Matthew uses Ruth's genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth. Matthew's genealogy being there in the middle. Again, we've established that the main purpose of Matthew's genealogy is the royal line, to establish the royal line. So therefore, that's why you see that there. Uh, why does Luke's look so different? So we said earlier that the, one of the things that genealogies, especially in the ancient world, tend to do is, in, as far as when it comes to God and, and, and the rabbis and that kind of thing, was to establish some kind of theological purpose, some sort of theological revelation about the subject, which in this case is Jesus. So in Luke, he, he starts with Nathan and describes the line through Nathan. Nathan is viewed as a righteous son of David. He wasn't... Absalom, who was a bad boy, nor was he Solomon, who was a bad boy. <laughs> In Judaism, even today, Solomon is not viewed as a hero. He is viewed as a negative person. Because it says in Chronicles, the end of second or at the end of Second Chronicles that um, not Second Chronicles, first Chronicles that, that Solomon's heart is pulled away by his many wives. He begins to worship these false gods. He's an example of someone who starts out well and ends poorly. 
Just because you received Jesus when you were 12 doesn't mean you stop growing now. You can't retire from Jesus. You can't retire from Christianity. It's a life and a relationship, not a coat you put on. It's not a badge you wear. So Luke chooses Nathan because Nathan's a good boy. <laughs> he wants to demonstrate that Jesus comes from a line of good boys. <laughs> He's a good Jewish boy. You can't find anything wrong with him. This is, so Luke has a specific theological reason for using Nathan rather than Solomon. Does that make sense? And again, the reason that some of the names are left out in Matthew is to make this uh, form fit. The form was more important than the facts. The form of 14 generations was more important to do this whole thing about completion and Jesus being the prototype and being the completion of all these generations than it was to have the correct people in there. Does that make sense? I have a question. Yes. What's the significance of the pink highlighted name? On, on, the, on the Luke side over there, those are the ones that are not listed, that are different, if you will, um, from the Matthew genealogy and the ones that vary from the Chronicles genealogy. So whenever you see the spaces uh, that are blocked, those are just left out of the pre from, from the preference. And so in Matthew, again, to fit this 14 generation thing, he leaves out, I think, five people out of the genealogy that's listed in First Chronicles. Just get the form. Because the overriding literary fact, or the literary uh, form, was to fit that rubric. Okay? Because for theological reasons. That happens a lot in the Gospels. This kind of thing. The, the, the writer has, has a particular reason theologically for putting Jesus in this light. And he'll fit the facts to show the light on that truth. You may alter the facts. So there, there's still yeah. people that go in these spaces. Yeah, there are people, but like Matthew didn't listen. Okay, he had his own rubric for how he wanted to replicate these genealogies. Right. Again, it doesn't make it not the word of God. It doesn't make it, it should not be a problem for you. It's just, it's just again, the theology was more important than the quote-unquote facts, literality, as we understand it. Today, we view this as like, ooh, you can't do that. You have to put them all in there. They have to be in the right order, and they have to be alphabetized. You know, that is not this period of time at all. That is not how these folks operated. Okay? Could it be uh, that there are signs that was different? Exactly. Their theology, yeah. what they were trying to say about Jesus. Right. Right. What your assignment was... You may have been telling the story, but your your uh, assignment was to tell maybe this portion of the story, like beginning, middle, end. So your assignment may have been to tell the beginning, and I'm just using that. But the next person's assignment is to tell the middle. And another person's assignment may be to tell it from the beginning to the ending, like in in Luke, right. So, yeah, everybody had their assignment, if you will. Everybody had their um, particular reason for writing the gospel as it is written. 
For instance, in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, right? John is very different. <laughs> the ordering of stuff is very different. For instance, you have, in John, you have the cleansing of the temple right off the bat, right? Now, we know, historically, it happened right before he died. So why does John pull that all the way to the beginning? For theological reasons. To demonstrate that Jesus is the Lord of the temple, right? That he is the one, if you tear this temple down in three days, I will build it up. It's to foretell his death and resurrection. So John rips the fact out of its historical context, yanks it all the way to the beginning of the story, so that the story tells a theological truth about who is Jesus. So... Moving things around was not a big deal in the ancient world. Just wasn't. Marking people out, moving stuff around, that was not a deal. Okay? It should not upset your sensibilities. If you're looking to put standards of 21st century liberality on the Bible, please stop now. It will frustrate you endlessly and is not appropriate. And we'll actually end up with weird doctrine. That's why we have so much weird stuff out there. No, just leave it alone. That's, <laughs> if you get caught up in all that business, that's, I think, a temptation of the evil one to distract you from the deeper truth of who is Jesus. Right. And, and how Jesus invites you to live in this world and to be a part of the kingdom of God. For you to get stuck in some little bitty something. And to get ripped apart. Yes. <clears throat> it's true. And if you really want to go into some, at some other point, we'll do, we'll do some of the Pauline letters in another year. <laughs> Not this year. There's a whole theological and sociological reason for that because it's clear in the earliest church that women were allowed to speak. Yes. And they were deacons and everything else. They had, there is no male nor female, slave nor free. Jew nor Gentile in the earliest church. So to close with, is there something particular that you learned today that's, that you'll take home and that will encourage your heart somehow today or this week? Yes. I will say that I have learned every, everything in, in the Word has purpose. And even though the names in the genealogies that are mentioned in Scripture may be difficult to pronounce, or it may take up a good portion of the chapter, it's still our responsibility as believers to dissect that information so that we can properly put the word into the right context and make sure that we're able to see how it all comes together and it can help us to better understand how to, how, I, don't, I can't remember how you say appropriate it appropriate, to yeah. our own lives and so that we can go to another level of understanding God. Right, and, and so the Holy Spirit has more to work with. Frankly, it helps us slow down with our life. Many of us rush through life and don't stop to see where God's already working. And so when you yeah. say it gives the yeah. Holy Spirit more to work with, does that does that mean that at that point we can go to another level as far as our revelation knowledge is concerned, what the revelations that He revealed to us in the New World?
Right, revelations. So, so your personal revelation has to do with the revelations in the scripture. They work in tandem. There's nothing new revealed. There are no new revelations. Anything that you hear in the spirit should always be in accordance with the revealed word. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay, so nobody's getting a new book for the Bible. Well, no, but I'm saying yeah. getting a better understanding. Yes, getting a better understanding. So exactly. So um, there's more pieces in the box for the Holy Spirit to pull out to help you internally understand how to process what's coming toward you. All right? So as you plow through life, we all make decisions based on baseline values. Everybody has baseline values. This is how I make my decisions on a daily moment-by-moment basis. The scripture is meant to inform and change and alter those values. And then the Holy Spirit uses, helps make that change internally by using the scripture. I can be walking along. Something happens. Let's say, you know, somebody cuts me off in traffic. My natural instinct is to go, what? Ah! Right? That's my flesh. But I remember, love your neighbor as yourself. And because the Holy Spirit has brought that to mind, and also because it's become so much a part of my spiritual DNA over years and years, it's like, okay, hey, that guy's having a bad day. Let me pray for him. Because it's not all about me. The scripture's not about me. It's about the Lord. My job is to be a part of the kingdom, not just to make my life better. That's the problem with the church today, and they'll shut up. (laughs) That's the problem with the church of Jesus Christ today is we've made the church all about us. If Christians would start acting like Jesus, there would be a revival. As opposed to Christians, we do ourselves the worst injury. We injure ourselves by acting like an idiot. We get caught up on social issues and then act like the devil. Yes, that's correct. That's right. So the social issues are important, but that's not what defines us as Christians. That's right. How I treat my family, how I treat the waitress, how I treat the little 17-year-old at McDonald's, how I treat the guy who cuts me off in traffic, how I treat... The people around me, my neighbor, that's what defines me. And if they start seeing that I act like Jesus and that I truly love, truly, not fake, not sexy, but love is Jesus' love, the world will change. Yes, that's it. We're not under judgment, y'all. Yeah. We're not. That's it. We're still here. Right. The church is still here. Therefore, the church has a job. Right. And that job is very, very critical. So next week, we'll finish up chapter 1, 18 through the end, the birth narrative. And that's all we're going to do is just a little birth narrative. I do encourage you to continue to listen or read the Gospel of Matthew all the way through, maybe even more than once. Let it get into your spiritual DNA. Yes, ma'am. Should we... Start reading the version that you gave us today. No, not necessary at all. No. If there are if there are things I want to point out in the Greek, I'll bring it up. Otherwise, read your own whatever you love.
I mean, like I said, I would stay away, as I said last week, from the old King James. New King James is fine, only because old King James just makes it even harder. Yes. We don't speak that way. Yes. Okay? All right. Yes? Uh, you know, I do a lot of I want to thank you for this great. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, there's, there's names that I've run across in the books, and I have no idea. And I try to chase them, trace them back based on what Right. And in all of these, like Bible Gateway, um, you can go and click on all these names, and it'll give you the Bible story. Obviously, we didn't have time to do that today on all these names. But you can go back and look at the Bible story for each and every one of these people. All right? That's something you want to do this week. And let us uh, pray. Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we again thank you so much for your word. Lord, as you have brought things up in our hearts and minds, we just give them to you. Holy Spirit, thank you for being our teacher. Holy Spirit, right now we just ask you would take all the needs, all the concerns that are represented here and around each table. And we just uh, bind them up and give them to you. You take care of them. You're the one who can make a difference anyway. Show us, Lord, how you're already at work in the situations around us. Before we open our mouth, Lord, may we listen to you. So, Lord, we just ask you would forgive us for sins. Give us the grace to forgive others. Help us not to yield to temptation and deliver us from the evil one. For you are of the royal house and you have adopted us uh, Lord through your death, burial, resurrection and ascension and we thank you for being able to cry out Abba Father thank you Lord that you've taken us into your family bring us back safely help us to have a good week in your word in Christ's name, Amen Amen, amen. amen. alright next week the end of Matthew 1 thank you Thank you for joining Inside Studios today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may you know that you are, through Jesus Christ, a part of a royal family. You are loved by God Himself. Have a blessed day.